Welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Today what we're going to talk about is a special topic, pesticide residues in food. None of us can walk down a grocery store aisle without seeing advertisements on products, uh, perhaps organic, pesticide-free. Uh, these sorts of things have become a part of our daily marketing in terms of the quality of food. Uh, pesticides, which we'll define in the course of this particular lecture as economic poisons, have become a distinct negative in terms of food marketing. However, from the production side, in terms of agriculture, control of, of uh, weeds, control of insects, it's, it's sometimes considered to be a very strong positive in terms of increased economic benefits, increased food yields. We introduced, uh, in terms of principles of environmental toxicology, we introduced the course trying to kind of explore different domains, take you outside yourself, your predisposition, uh, maybe some of the ways that you think enhance your critical thinking. Pesticides, because the term has been so marketed heavily and loaded, uh, it has perhaps distorted what they are, how they function, what has been their historical use in terms of managing our food supply. Yes, there are inherent risks, and I use that term, economic poisons, very comfortably. In a certain sense, it's us versus them. What we have seen in terms of the disposition of pesticides and the use of pesticides historically is many mistakes. These mistakes were highlighted in the historical newsreels shown in the Rachel Carson Silent Spring video. For many of the students in this particular course, you weren't around at that point in time, and I was. And so in a certain sense, to reflect on what I'll call recent history, at least in my context, recent history, it's a good idea to know where we came from in terms of our exploration of this man's interaction with uh, his or her environment. I think this is important. What we're going to do today is explore pesticide residues in food in the human food chain. Now, I will admit to you that there are off-target, non-target impacts in the environment. Many of those we'll discuss in terms of parts of other lectures in this course. What we're going to do today is talk about the intentional use of these economic poisons in the human food chain. I also reflect to an introductory uh, premise that I uh, asked you early on in terms of taking you outside yourselves and perhaps your predisposition, pre-thoughts on this issue is uh, the title of a very poorly written book in my, my estimation, but Saving the Planet with Pesticides and Plastics. I give the author credit for one thing and that's to at least open us up to perhaps pesticides, per these uh, economic poisons have a role in terms of minimizing uh, the amount of area that we convert, the natural uh, rainforests uh, in, in some cases, uh, by increasing productivity on existing arable lands and keeping out these marginally arable lands out of production in need. Uh, we have a growing world population. Uh, many people think that agricultural chemistry, and chemistry is not a bad word, that being safer uh, uh, challenging kind of the way we've done things in the past but innovating for the future is a part of the way we provide safe and nutritious food for us while at the same time protecting the environment. It is a complex issue but this issue got a lot less complex and as I'll talk about in 1996 recent history with the Food Quality Protection Act and one of the things we'll do in today's lecture is review the Food Quality Protection Act and try and give you a background of where things have changed 
we now are facing the 10-year anniversary of this particular particular uh, monument in, in pesticide legislation. Uh, in fact, uh, I would, would argue that we have achieved all of the goals of the Food Quality Protection Act. Are we doing the best we can? Probably close to it in terms of regulatory science. We still have to innovate. We still have to be safer. We have to be considered. We have to be, as scientists, uh, able to analyze the world around us, including our food system, and devise ways to study those unpredicted impacts in the same way we saw the unpredicted impacts of DDT in the middle part of the last century. Our learning objectives here today in terms of pesticide residues in food, we're going to try to develop an introductory understanding of pesticide use and more importantly it's monitoring in the human food chain. Okay, And as I said, these are economic poisons and they therefore require an amount of due diligence in terms of their use in the human food chain. Pesticides are meant to kill something, whether that's a plant or an insect, or in some cases, an animal such as a rodent. We're going to try to know the major classes of pesticides. I'm not going to make you a pesticide expert out of this, but to give you some familiarization, I'll pull some terms of the hundreds of compounds and commercial names and trade names and chemical structures that are in use. I'll pull a few out, things like the Dirty Dozen, uh, that have historical context, some ones that are actively used, widespread use today, and we'll try to understand the major aspects, the major classes of these types of compounds and the diversity of their uses. We'll try as well to understand the legal basis for monitoring. In a society such as ours, a democratic society, we, in terms of the community electorate, the constituents, have a role in terms of voicing our opinions and in some cases our outrage to the government. And in a certain sense I have said that the history and the changes that we've observed in regulatory science is made by people dissatisfied with the status quo, people that are uncomfortable. And we have had a lot of history of uncomfortable individuals that were outraged at the way things were being done. We still have a tremendous amount of pull and sway in terms of pesticide use. Pesticide use, which prior to the Food Quality Protection Act was actually hidden behind things like CBI, confidential business information. The toxicity data associated with pesticides in your food chain used to be considered to be a business secret, a trade secret in terms of the toxicology. This all changed in recent history in 1996. We'll try to understand how we have given the authority to our government to manage the disposition of these economic poisons that are used in agriculture, but more importantly, in public health applications in terms of our communities and our society. We'll try to comprehend the risk versus benefits decisions that are made. These are poisonous compounds that have the potential for these off-target, non-target, and I'll have to say mistakes uh, that, that do happen on occasion. What are the risks in terms of those bad events versus the benefits associated with agricultural chemical? Try to treat it fairly. 
What we're not going to try to do is change your minds. What we're going to try to do is give you the uh, academic information uh, and the necessary background, uh, uh, some of the uh, lexicon, I guess, of, of uh, pesticides uh, in addition to toxicology so that you can further explore this issue at the depth and level that you care to in terms of your professional careers. Two of the risk-benefit analyses that we'll do, we'll do them in the context of regulatory science. Uh, there are two major bodies of legislation in U.S. pesticide law, FIFRA and FQPA. The Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, which has its historical underpinnings pinnings in the early 1900s and has developed pretty much with the advent of industrial chemistry in the United States. As well, we'll talk about the background of the Food Quality Protection Act and also the relationship, if you will, of uh, uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring publication of that book in 1960 and how, in fact, that was uh, lit the fuse, so to speak, in terms of a reevaluation of our relationship with pesticides. Well, in terms of pesticides, I've defined them as economic and uh, public health poisons, and that is not a loaded definition. These are poisonous compounds that we apply selectively to food. We do this uh, to food and also for public health uh, applications. Uh, if you've ever been in urban areas, uh, you know that there is quite often, uh, in some major metropolitan areas, rat infestation problems. How do we control rats? Well, we, uh, uh, they are a more than a nuisance. Uh, they are a risk to public health in terms of disease vectors and pathogens that they carry. Uh, rodenticides are a classification of pesticides. We use these compounds to control weeds, uh, insects, uh, rodents, and other pest animals. And this is a classification. This is a hard one for many people because in a certain sense we are trying to either repel things, uh, repellent type uh, chemicals, or to kill things in terms of poisonous chemicals. We use them in public health applications for bacterial, fungal, and viral uh, eradication, infection control. We use this in agriculture. Many plants are susceptible to viruses. We also use them in homes and public health uh, applications. And again, I just invite you to look at the array of products that are used in any food establishment to keep uh, 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 tabletops clean, uh, to keep utensils clean. All of these are a part of the background of uh, these chemicals that we use in our daily lives. Uh, many people choose to use antibiotic soap. Uh, there is a chemical in antibiotic soap or two, uh, triclosan, triclocarban. Uh, these are uh, pesticidal compounds, if you will. They're antibiotic biocidal compounds. Uh, there's actually some cause for concern in terms of their persistence in the environment and you balance that against the uh, protective aspects uh, that you have in terms of controlling uh, human uh, disease in terms of keeping your hands clean uh, and if you have children uh, keeping uh, their environment uh, a little bit less uh, uh, pathogen free, a little bit more pathogen free. In pesticide chemistry, we deal with natural chemicals, synthetic chemicals, and biological agents. Uh, most of us have heard of genetically modified uh, foods such as Bt corn. 
in Bt corn, we have taken the gene out of Bacillus thuringiensis, which produces a bacterial toxin, Bt toxin, and inserted it into the corn plant. So it makes this protein, which is broadly repellent to crawling insects like corn boring worms. Um, the uh, residue in a pesticide, and we're dealing with pesticide residues when we deal with the nominal food system. And what I mean by that is the normal food system in terms of managing application of these chemicals, which may or may not be used in, in a particular food product, and there may be a risk associated with that, or there may be no risk associated with that. What we're trying to do here in principles of environmental toxicology is give you the benefit of uh, how risk assessments and risk analysis is done. Uh, show you that, in fact, these basic principles of dose response, safety factors, human health risk assessment are used in determining whether or not these chemicals are going to be used in the human food system. Historically, we had very limited control, and in fact, even in the present day, some folks would argue that in many of the places where we get our food, uh, we lose control over the regulatory science that we apply to our own growers here in the United States. For example, if we eat out-of-season uh, produce that comes to us from another country, there may be limits in terms of that country's ability to enforce or educate their workforce on the proper use of these economic poisons. There is enhanced risks that go beyond that and that goes essentially from another country into our marketplace. Is there monitoring? Yes. And one of the things we'll talk about is monitoring and monitoring programs for pesticides. Uh, one of the uh, not so widely held secrets, I guess, uh, about pesticides, people think that there is a tremendously rigorous program of review, statistically significant. The program for reviewing or monitoring pesticides in the human food chain is neither uh, rigorous or statistically significant, but we do the best we can with the resources that we can in terms of our national treasure. What we primarily rely on here in the United States is upfront training, regulation, pre-market testing of, of chemicals to make sure that their use is safe. We then establish a license called a label. This is an important concept in terms of its allowable uses. We'll finish today's lecture talking about an illegal or violative use uh, that actually sicken people. So we do do a lot of the upfront work, and we rely on educated farm workers, pesticide applicators, farm owners to actually manage these chemicals in a responsible way. And there is significant criminal and civil penalty if you do not, if you work in the human food chain. That being said, there are many chemicals that you will find in your local hardware store for home use. And in fact, uh, there are many in the, in uh, informed individuals in this field that regard homeowners as being kind of the worst culprits in terms of misuse of pesticides, whether it be uh, for lawn or household use, uh, over application, misapplication, or just uh, application that is uh, not necessary. Well, in terms of uh, monitoring pesticides, one of the programs we'll review here uh, in, in brief is the PDP or Pesticide Data Program. Uh, you can search this. I've given the URL down at the bottom. Um, this is a 
pesticide monitoring program, and I said that we do the best we can. We actually do thousands of samples. Uh, in this particular 2004 study, 12,446 samples. When you consider each one of these uh, samples uh, can be thousands of dollars of analytical uh, work, you can recognize that, in fact, this is a substantial amount of uh, U.S. national treasure going to monitor, and this is just one of about four or five pesticide monitoring programs in the United States. What they do is they try to do an educated analysis of what experts consider to be the most and greatest risk in terms of human food chain and pesticide residues. They look for the worst chemicals in the highest concentrations based on historical application rates and historical problems. They do some focused monitoring where they attempt to get statistical significance. So, for instance, out of this 12,000, uh, 2,000 of them in one year might be peaches. Uh, so that they can get some assessment of or enhanced uh, statistical significance in terms of their monitoring so they can actually uh, suggest that uh, there is or is not a problem with some degree of reliability, uh, essentially quantifying the uncertainty involved in non-statistical analysis. But these typically are just surveys and monitoring programs. There are also regulatory programs uh, because this is an enforcement arena FIFRA is a body of federal law. FIFRA enforcement for pesticides, as you'll see, is often uh, primacy down to the states and the state departments of agriculture. And so, for instance, if you're a farmer in the Northwest, it's going to be your state of Washington or state of Idaho uh, uh, Department of Agriculture inspector that is going to be monitoring uh, how you use pesticides in a commercial application. They also have the responsibility for training programs. In the year 2004, and there's a lag time because of the huge amount of collection, processing, data, uh, uh, laboratory analysis, and data analysis involved in this, there's uh, typically you know, almost a two-year lag in the reporting of results. And so this isn't monitoring in terms of mitigating risk of uh, any sort of uh, food contamination. This is seeing what's out there and getting some feedback in terms of where we need to apply additional resources. There are programs that do inspect, that do analyze uh, perishable commodities that are imported, but I'll also uh, uh, address the fact that these are perishable commodities. And for an analysis to take place, I would say even a multi-residue screen in a rapid fashion, uh, two days, and two days of a perishable commodity being held in a port while an analysis takes place is a significant amount of time in terms of the uh, 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 perishable nature of a food. So its shelf life is happening, uh, essentially being, being dismissed and discounted at the port. There are also increased concerns about uh, threats in terms of terrorism threats to the food supply and whether or not it could be caught. Most uh, informed individuals that look at our food supply and the relative amount of imported food suggest that we are at high risk for terrorism when it comes to chemical contamination of the U.S. food supply because of a whole lot of things uh, and just the challenge 
We haven't been able to do it with regards to these economic poisons that are routinely regulated and we know are out there. Uh, to, to find these nefarious uh, materials sometimes uh, that would escape uh, the types of chemical analysis and screening is perhaps an even greater challenge in terms of ensuring the safety of the U.S. food supply. In the PDP in 2004, what we found in terms of detectable residue, these are food residues, and when you use an agricultural chemical, sometimes, not all the time, you find a trace residue on the food product. This is often more likely the case with systemic chemicals, chemicals that act throughout the entire plant, and so there might be a residue in all parts, whether it be a tuber or a fruit or in the, the aspects of a leafy vegetable. Detectable residues were found on 70% of fruit and vegetable samples and about greater than 50% of drinking water samples. Now, why in a pesticide data program are we analyzing drinking water? Well, it has a lot to do with the Food Quality Protection Act, which we'll talk about here in a minute, that suggests that we need to look at all sources of uh, exposure, not just in food, so we can get an accumulative residue, an aggregate exposure to do our risk assessments. And so water analysis are an important part of that. Now also recognize that detectable residue is what comes up on the screen in terms of uh, chemicals that are available to be screened. And typically about 300 or so on are done on multi-residue screens. There's different classes of chemicals. They all require different sorts of approaches. Sometimes we can bunch 50, 60, 70, maybe even 80 into one screen and get a lot of data with one exercise. Some require very specific analytical methodology. And so this is a particularly difficult challenge uh, in terms of screening. Also respect that the 70% detection includes the detection of these lipophilic uh, pesticides like DDT, Dieldrin, that uh, have had historical use. They're still circulating uh, in the environment uh, they're not actively being used, but these very sensitive assays do pick them up in trace quantities. And so not all of this 70% is detection of actively used chemicals. Some of it is chemicals that are just circulating uh, in the fields uh, from uh, use that was 20 years ago in some cases. In terms of the important um, aspects, in terms of risk, residues exceeding tolerance. And we'll define what a tolerance is, but uh, for right now, we can just say it is the legal maximum concentration of a chemical in a particular food product. So it will be a residue for atrazine in spinach, a chemical with a commodity. The residue exceeding tolerance, 0.2% of the samples, and you can do the math in terms of 12,446 samples of how many samples showed up. Now that just means it went over the limit. It doesn't tell us how much over the relative risk of that, but in terms of a regulatory science marker, 0.2% exceeded tolerance. The next level is, is also a violative uh, aspect of the regulatory science of pesticides, and these are residues without tolerance. This means that a chemical was found in a commodity, and it is not registered for that commodity. This is a serious breach of the uh, public management system of pesticides, but also within this particular statistic, you need to know there are other ways for contamination to occur. 
For example, what we just talked about, residues without tolerance. There is no tolerance for DDT in spinach because it's a banned pesticide, insecticide. If there is a detection, it counts as a residue without tolerance. So any detection, but uh, we choose not to ban products that have these residual historical, very trace levels, in some cases subparts per billion because our detection is so good. Uh, however, if we do find a residue without tolerance that has a certain risk uh, level, uh, it's an active application. It's in the part per million range, typically not the subpart per billion or low part per billion range. Those residues that are violative without tolerance or exceeding tolerance can lead to a crop ban. So all of the commodity from that cannot be diluted. It cannot be recycled. It is burned or buried. Okay. Um, the other aspect, excuse me, of um, this particular uh, uh, residues without tolerance is uh, essentially these violative uh, overspray incidences. If a farmer in one field is growing a certain commodity and dealing with a pesticide uh, that is registered and allowed to be used on that, but a wind whips up and carries it to one county over and deposits it on a field on a commodity where it's not registered, even a trace detection can be counted as violative. The relative risk there, because it's not a direct application, is typically low because the concentrations are low, but it can be regarded as a violative residue. And so these are, are instances of uh, uh, occurrences of uh, residue without tolerance uh, that sometimes come to play. I can think of uh, a situation I was personally involved in uh, in the uh, 1990s when a chemical in uh, the Agricultural Marketing Services marketing program uh, was detected uh, in Idaho potatoes. This particular chemical was orthophenolphenol. Any of you that have used the commercial product Lysol have probably used it because it controls, uh, it's a biocide, it controls bacterial growth and some of the smells associated with it. So you spray your trash cans or maybe your bathroom with this product. Orthophenophenol is, is a very uh, low-grade uh, uh, poison. Uh, it's a public health poison. But OPP was showing up in potatoes. Now there is really no reason for a potato farmer to use Lysol, in essence, on their product. Uh, so there was a big mystery on why this compound was showing up on some of these regulatory science assays. With a little bit of Sherlock Holmes investigation, uh, what they found was actually the potato sacks that were used were treated uh, with uh, OPP to inhibit mold and growth and storage of just the sacks themselves. When the potatoes were put in the sacks, there was essentially some leaching uh, of the material from the sack into the food product. Uh, that particular vendor of potato sacks stopped that particular process and it led to it. It wasn't a human health risk because of the very low toxicity of this particular chemical, but it was a very interesting case of an uh, analysis of the different control points to find out where, in fact, this chemical was entering that particular food uh, channel. Now, this is the uh, analysis of the scope of commercial activity. Unfortunately, this is 10-year-old data. It's the best I could find. And this was the data that was done up in the run-up to the Food Quality Protection Act, because uh, the idea in, in the FDPA was to analyze the scope of US commercial activity. 
we found that, uh, and, and this probably has not diminished, and I would say these numbers have probably increased significantly in the past decade. Uh, in terms of active ingredients, these are unique, separate uh, AIs, as they're called, um, that are chemically uh, distinct, sometimes modified from each other. There's a little bit of a trick in pesticide chemistry and in pharmaceutical chemistry. If someone patents a chemical compound for uh, a particular application, uh, their competitors sometimes will do a minor chemical modification, add a methyl group to it, and patent that uh, particular chemical. And so you might have uh, four, five, or six chemicals that have the same sort of target mode of action, but have their actually separate and unique uh, chemicals because of these minor functional group changes. Uh, the active ingredients that were in the food chain uh, in 1996 are about 350 unique chemicals. Uh, this gave yield in terms of how these chemicals are packaged by different vendors and different combinations uh, into about 20,000 different products. Again, just stroll down your uh, hardware store shelf uh, for, for pest control products and you can see at least dozens of commonly used household chemicals. But as you take that trip around the store and you see other sort of biocides, cleaning products, you can start increasing the numbers uh, significantly. These 20,000 products and their applications generated 9,000 tolerances. The generation of a tolerance or a maximum contaminant of a particular chemical in a particular commodity is done with a full-bore risk assessment analysis that involves a tremendous amount of field work, laboratory analysis, and report writing. Uh, sometimes these tolerances can be generated uh, following about uh, one million to as much as ten or uh, even more million dollars worth of research. In terms of the quantity of pesticides, active ingredients used, 1.25 billion pounds in the United States. Now this is a scary and large number. I will tell you that active ingredients sometimes aren't what you consider to be these very toxic pesticides. Sometimes uh, uh, these chemicals that are used in food and food production are innocuous chemicals, uh, fertilizer type materials. Uh, if someone wants to take the blood from a slaughterhouse which has nutrient value and apply it to agricultural fields, they have to go through a registration approval or review process. And so, in fact, there are many uh, products in here that you would regard as innocuous, safe, natural, non-synthetic. Okay? So not every one of these is your classic uh, pesticide or agricultural chemical, as we have learned to kind of think about them in terms of the media representations of pesticides. In terms of the uh, relative rate of uh, use, herbicides uh, are f greater than 50% of the volume and greater than 50% of the sales, and they are the most top 10 use. Uh, this is probably, in terms of human health risk assessment, a good thing, because herbicides typically have low mammalian toxicity. They kill plants, they don't kill insects. Uh, when they don't kill insects, they typically are less toxic to us. And so it's not to say that herbicides and some herbicides don't have toxic impact in terms of human food consumption. Uh, yes, they can, but uh, in fact, on a relative risk basis, just taking a look at a broad statistic like this, uh, this tells us, number one, that uh, weeds are a big problem and that herbicides are used uh, quite broadly. 
In terms of retail sales, and these are 10-year-old numbers, uh, greater than $10 billion uh, in retail sales. So this is a big industry. Uh, why I say this is economic poisons, it's economic in terms of enhancing production and also uh, in the marketplace uh, um, allowing for uh, a um, number one just a, a commodity uh, or a pesticide chemical product to be sold but it's also an economic poison with respect to the cost of food in the United States. Increasing production, as the economists will tell you, decreases prices. And so we are faced with the fact that there is this risk-benefit trade-off. We have cheap food, people tell us, the economists tell us uh, in the United States relative to other countries. One of the reasons is we have a very, uh, I'll say, scientific approach to agronomy and agriculture. There are trade-offs to this economic or cheap food policy that we have here in the United States in terms of risk to the environment, the management of risks in terms of the human diet. In terms of agricultural use alone, greater than $8 billion of chemicals. Now, for those of you, and I, I, I will say this, and I'm not defending agriculture or farmers, but having spoke with many farmers, uh, they are as sensitive about uh, chemicals uh, in uh, food as you are. Uh, meaning anybody that might be uh, opposed to agricultural chemical use uh, in the human food chain. They're opposed to it or concerned about it for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the major reason, it's a cost element. Sometimes it can cost as much as three or hundred or more dollars per acre to do a treatment with a chemical. This is a very large production cost. When you have a large production cost, it impacts the bottom line, the profitability of that operation. Any farmer you talk to, and I'll be very clear about this because I've talked to many, would not use chemicals if they didn't have to. Many of them express the attitudes that they use it because of bottom line needs, because consumers won't buy apples with spots on them, uh, and because of just overall economic benefits to their operation. It is, they regard, a cost of doing business. Most of the individuals involved in production agriculture also express concern about occupational exposure. At any level, most individuals involved in agriculture live near or on the farm, even in distributed farming networks. They are concerned about the potential toxic impacts of these chemicals to themselves, their family, and to their workers. And so this is, this is a, a level of concern, perhaps, that has filtered down over the ages. Of course, across the wide uh, scope of, of individuals, you will find people that defend this, uh, like the freedom to speak. But in a certain sense, there have been, in the past 10 years, a tremendous amount of opening up of the use of, of, uh, uh, of chemicals in agriculture. Uh, we know a lot more about it in terms of as consumers, but I think farmers know a lot more about it because of the educational requirements of current pesticide legislation. Now, we have had, um, in the past few decades, some trends in regulation and use, and this is the post-silent spring era where in a certain sense the consuming public has identified pesticides as a four-letter word. Uh, pesticides are evil, dirty, toxic, and so it is something to be avoided. So that does have a marketplace, uh, dramatic marketplace uh, impact in terms of uh, our perception of the safety of food. 
not in terms of real risk, but in perceived risk. And the marketplace responds to these perceived risks by marketing organic or non-pesticide, non-chemicals in terms of the production of food. Typically, these uh, commodities are a higher cost because of the losses due to weeds and other uh, uh, pathogens in terms of production. Some of the trends in regulation use, uh, lower use rate. Uh, we've uh, found that uh, uh, nature challenges us in terms of coming up uh, with uh, uh, an increased immunity of insects to certain chemicals, lower volume applications in terms of uh, how much is used on a per acre basis. Uh, if you recall, uh, in the Silent Spring video, there was a couple of newsreels, uh, and one was an aquatic uh, application, and I recall seeing a sign that was posted in, in the middle of this water body that said uh, 2,4-D, uh, which is an herbicide, it's used by homeowners on, on many lawns for broadleaf uh, plants, uh, and the, the, the pounds, the application rate was 10 pounds per acre. Uh, this is a pretty significant application rate when you contrast that to, for instance, what is regarded as a safer class of herbicides used today, the sulfonylureas, which are, have application rates uh, on the order of 5 grams per acre. Uh, the SU's uh, sulfonylureas uh, have low mammalian toxicity. They biodegrade in 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 days. Uh, they have extraordinarily good target sensitivity. Uh, the very biggest downside is they're so bioactive that uh, you have to be extremely careful about application overspray because uh, SUs will typically kill most plants it comes in contact with, even desirables, uh, including trees, uh, downwind, and other your neighbor's uh, crops. Uh, there are risk mitigation requirements in terms of special use applications. Uh, some of these, for example, um, involve uh, uh, banning certain leaching chemicals from uh, uh, use in sandy soils uh, because they have the potential to leach into the aquifer and contaminate water, drinking water systems. There's, uh, we've seen a proliferation in the past several decades of IPM or integrated pest management where you use biocontrols, you rotate crops, uh, get away from monocropping. Uh, yes, chemical use is, uh, is allowed and encouraged as a part of IPM, but it is a part of a total pest control strategy. Um, there is uh, an approach called conditional registration, where in fact if a chemical is going to be used in certain uh, types of environments, uh, there will be a proscribed monitoring requirement. You will pull the water samples, you will pull the soil uh, samples or the commodity and do analysis to make sure that it is uh, not having the negative impacts that it may have been projected to have. There is a trend for safer chemicals. Sometimes these are modeled after natural chemicals, and we've done a tremendous job uh, over uh, the past uh, several centuries, to be honest, of, of mimicking uh, nature in how we control uh, plant and animal uh, 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 pathogens. Uh, we, when we take our cues from nature, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are safer. And one of the things I've tried to say in this course is sometimes nature can be extraordinarily toxic. 
we have finding an enhanced use of biopesticides, um, and one of the reasons why we like these naturally occurring compounds is often they are very biodegradable. And so we track that particular aspect of it. Uh, we want these chemicals to get in, do their dirty work, and then get out of the ecosystem, get out of the food system in terms of its ability to biodegrade. And so these, this is a strong aspect in terms of uh, biopesticide use. Uh, another aspect is just looking at it differently using nature, uh, for example, spraying uh, orchards uh, with the uh, Bt uh, bisol thuringiensis, the actual bacterium, and spraying it to minimize or keep down the uh, uh, boring insects. There are some uh, increased exposure concerns. Uh, there's an analysis of the patterns, routes, and levels of exposure uh, on the farm and off the farm. There is a substantially increased requirement for applicator training. This is an occupational exposure. When you saw the Rachel Carson video, you saw a farmer uh, in full dress uh, uh, in a tractor. Here's a example of a similar sort of uh, uh, tractor. This is an orchard spraying sort of uh, rig to, to fog trees. Uh, you can see the bubble uh, that the individual would be in. So farm worker uh, exposure, uh, exposure of families of farm workers uh, and farm owners uh, because they live in the middle of production agriculture is of substantial concern. Well, what we're going to do is uh, try to review uh, some of the major classes of pesticides, again, so you have a little bit idea of the variety and diversity of the chemicals that are used to control uh, many of these pests and pathogens uh, as uh, economic poisons. Uh, insecticides, uh, herbicides to kill plants, uh, fungicides to kill uh, various molds and fungus, um, and we will talk in this course about uh, what happens uh, with uh, certain sort of toxic elements of many of the uh, uh, various insects and pathogens that are borne by various uh, insects, rodents, uh, uh, in turn some of the control strategies as well. Uh, we have bactericides. These are typically used in public health uh, applications, uh, surface treatments. Uh, we use uh, many of these chemicals, for example, in sterilization of uh, instruments in hospitals. Uh, there is a wide range of compounds. The next time you go to your doctor's office, uh, read some of the labels of the containers sitting on the counter that are used to wash hands, to use to uh, sterilize instruments, uh, clean up uh, countertops in terms of you know, human infectious disease. Um, biopesticides uh, are another class, and there are also special application uh, pesticides that are used, for example, to kill fish uh, from an invasive species point of view, piscicides. In terms of these special application chemicals, I'll give you kind of a litany of uh, some of the names of these uh, chemical compounds. These are the categories, uh, acaricides, uh, algicides to kill algae, uh, avicides. Uh, for example, uh, algicide is a paraquat uh, compound sometimes. Algae is a plant, and so in a certain sense, we have to have um, uh, chemical compounds that kill plants. If any of the students have ever uh, slept on a waterbed, uh, one of the downsides of waterbeds uh, is if you don't put an algicide in the waterbed itself, you're going to be sleeping on an algae bed. 
Now, it's pretty disgusting. The chemical compound they have you add to your waterbed is a quaternary ammonium uh, chloride compound. Read the label. You're using uh, an algicide in, that, in your waterbed. Avicides, uh, as you can imagine, uh, kill birds. Uh, there are uh, certain types of birds, uh, some sparrows. Uh, some people in agriculture, for example, refer to them as winged rats uh, because they will come down and denude uh, a grain field, or, and uh, it's a fairly large-scale problem. In terms of them and the ability of these various very large flocks of birds sometimes uh, and nuisance birds uh, to carry and transport uh, disease. We have bactericides, as I said, piscicides. Uh, piscicides are used by wildlife managers and biologists. Um, if we have a, uh, a lake, for example, that has had an alien species introduction, uh, a carnivorous fish that has destroyed the natural ecology, uh, the wildlife managers may decide to essentially sterilize the lake by adding piscicides, uh, kill off all the fish and restock that particular lake with native species. It's a management tool. Viricides uh, that inhibit or control viruses, uh, molluscicides uh, to control uh, things like barnacles or clams. Uh, sometimes uh, they're used, for example, um, on ships and ship hulls. Uh, chemical compound of this class is TBT, tributyl tin. Uh, it was used uh, as a paint additive on many ships uh, in commercial use uh, uh, because uh, uh, barnacles and, and mussels uh, uh, adhering to the side of a ship hull uh, increases the drag, decreases energy efficiency, slows the vessel down. Uh, it's a nuisance. And so TBT added to paint uh, was added to uh, control the attachment of mollusks to uh, shipboard, ship hulls. Unfortunately, they found that uh, TBT would leach out of the paint and collect in organisms, especially in harbors. And so TBT has gone down in use. It's banned in some areas. Uh, they've tried using other chemicals, uh, including, by the way, a hot pepper sauce uh, mixed with the paint as a broad capsaicin. Uh, the same sort of uh, neurotoxic effects uh, you have when you have a spicy Thai or Mexican meal is the same sort of effect in terms of uncomfortableness uh, that a mollusk gets in terms of uh, its uh, sticking to a shipboard hull that's been treated with this type of chemical. Uh, there are insect attractants, uh, so uh, you can see these. These are sometimes pheromones. Um, there are insect repellents uh, we use when we go out. Uh, in uh, uh, the woods when we have uh, uh, fear of, uh, or we want to not have uh, mosquito bites, we'll use uh, DEET or some other compounds. There are bird repellents uh, and there are mammal repellents. Uh, uh, there are plant growth activators. Uh, these sometimes are have a hormonal uh, uh, effect. Uh, for example, uh, ethylene oxide, uh, or ethylene, I'm sorry, uh, is used uh, to uh, activate or to have uh, certain plants ripen faster. There's a class of compounds called synergists. And you remember in our concepts in toxicology, we talked about 2 plus 0 equals uh, 6, that the uh, uh, toxicity of a chemical can be by itself 0. We can also talk about its 
activity. It may not be just toxicity, but it's biological activity. And there are chemical compounds. One of them is piperonal butoxide, and you'll see that in the back of some sprays uh, for insect control, for example, uh, that are added to synergize the chemical compound, the active ingredient in there. It turns it on, so to speak. It makes it more bioactive. And it does this by a biochemical modification within the species, the target species. In and of itself, it has low uh, to no toxicity, uh, but when combined with a toxic compound, it enhances the toxicity. Well, what we're going to do in the next few slides is review uh, several uh, chemical classes, uh, pesticides that are in uh, particular ones. We'll do some of these by name. Some of these names you might have heard of in your experience, especially if you're in any sort of agricultural profession, uh, agronomy, horticulture, uh, even uh, animal science. Uh, the antibiotic insecticides, uh, these are classic compounds, relatively modern, abamectin, spinosad. Spinosad, for example, is uh, a somewhat natural product in that uh, it was, and we'll talk about this in our ecological biochemistry, but spinosad was an isolate from a bacterium discovered by a chemical company scientist who had a hobby of collecting soil samples whenever he went on travels. The soil sample he brought back from Hawaii had a particular bacterium Actinomyces-type uh, bacterium that uh, exuded a particular chemical that had tremendous uh, insecticidal control. Uh, about all the chemical company did was stabilize it to make sure that it had uh, the required ability, and this particular chemical is actively used uh, as an insecticide, for example, on potatoes. The arsenical insecticides, uh, lead arsenate, uh, is uh, use, was used historically uh, quite often in, in uh, fruit trees. There are arsenical uh, pharmaceuticals that are used in animal, uh, as animal drugs, uh, and these are uh, bactericides. Uh, roxarsone is used in poultry and in swine production, uh, and it does lead to a trace residue of arsenic in uh, 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 in a very similarly regulated uh, environment in terms of contamination residue. There are botanical insecticides. Uh, nicotine uh, is a, a very potent insecticide coming from the tobacco plant. Uh, pyrethrins uh, come from the chrysanthemums. Uh, you might see some organic gardeners that will plant mums on the periphery of their gardens. They do this because of the uh, natural insecticide pyrethrins. Uh, Rotenone uh, is uh, an insecticide that is uh, uh, from various species of plants uh, in the uh, Americas, uh, especially in South America, uh, the timbo tree, the neko tree. Uh, rotenone uh, has active insecticidal activity. It is, even though it is a compound that is extracted from plant roots and has this insecticidal activity, is regarded as a uh, organic insecticide becomes because it is a natural product. Rotenone is highly toxic uh, to fish, uh, and its regulations in terms of use you have to be a considerable difference distance away from uh, aquatic ecosystems uh, to use it safely. Uh, its actual use was, uh, in terms of Aboriginal use. Uh, Ground-up uh, pieces of root from the timbo tree were thrown into uh, little rivers or lakes. 
uh, rotenone impacts the fish's ability for respiration. The fish uh, get into respiratory distress. They come to the surface. Uh, their goal, their gills, uh, do not exchange oxygen, and they can be easily caught by a net or a spear or an arrow at that point in time. So it is a fishing insecticide, if you will, or and uh, a pesticide uh, in terms of its potential application. In terms of another classic compounds, we do have bacteriums, and primarily this is Bt or bacillotherangenesis. I think there's two or three other um, uh, bacterial toxins that are used. This is widely used, uh, not only in a direct application of the bacterium. Uh, I've used it myself. Uh, it's considered to be an organic strategy, um, although uh, Bt toxin gene has been placed in, uh, excuse me, several species of um, of plants in uh, terms of genetically modified uh, organisms. Uh, carbamate insecticides, uh, this is a class of uh, cholinesterase uh, inhibitors, the N-methylcarbamates. Uh, when I say cholinesterase inhibitors or neurotoxic insecticides, typically this is the class of chemicals of most concern in terms of uh, pesticide use in the human food chain. Uh, carbamates, there are naturally occurring carbamates and synthetic. This is a list of synthetic ones, aldicarb, uh, carbaryl, carbofuran, oximal. Carbofuran and carbaryl uh, have uh, some restricted use. Um, aldicarb uh, is used, for example, uh, as a nematicide or to kill the, cr the crawling, biting worms uh, that impact, for example, uh, tubers like carrots uh, uh, and potatoes. The OCs are organochlorine insecticides. Uh, many of these have made up the dirty dozen list because of their non-polarity, their lipophilicity, their persistence, bioaccumulative toxic uh, uh, impacts. Aldrin, Dieldrin, DDT, Endrin uh, are uh, four of the more famous uh, members of the Dirty Dozen. Uh, we still use methoxychlor. Uh, it uh, has uh, several insecticidal use. PCP, pentachlorophenol, is a uh, chemical that has also seen use as a wood treatment, PCP-treated wood. Uh, is pretty much not uh, in favor and banned in most applications in the U.S., although the residuals of PCP-treated wood uh, exist pretty much all around the country. Uh, and PCP-treated wood treatment plants, including many in the Northwest, uh, actually uh, survive as uh, hazardous uh, sites, hazardous waste sites in terms of contaminated soil. The uh, N-methylcarbamate aldicarb is in the structure of that uh, carbamate moiety is uh, on the bottom of this particular slide. The OPs, uh, the organophosphorus uh, insecticides, uh, many people say organophosphate. It's actually a misnomer, although close enough. They are organophosphorus insecticides. Uh, typically what you find is a, uh, a moiety uh, of these phosphate type groups here. Uh, this sulfur and parathione, sometimes in other compounds, is an oxygen. Uh, this part of the chemical, as you'll see in cholinesterase inhibition, is the active part. This part over here is what's referred to as the leaving group. It's a part of the bioactivity of this particular chemical. 
The OPs include uh, chemicals such as azenphosmethyl, uh, glutathione, uh, used quite widely in uh, many applications, especially uh, tree fruits and nuts. Uh, it has actually been severely restricted. I believe that was about three or five years ago. Uh, one of the problems I know of in terms of off-target effects was uh, this particular insecticide was used in dormant treatment. So in the wintertime, when there's no leaves or fruit on the trees, the trees would be sprayed, uh, very similar to the sprayer you saw in the Rachel Carson uh, uh, video. However, uh, once treated, uh, the residual OP, this very uh, neurotoxic chemical, would actually uh, cross transdermally into the talons of uh, predatory birds. And uh, they were starting to see a tremendous amount of uh, non-target impacts with uh, these trophy species, such as red-tailed hawks uh, and, in some cases, eagles. Dichlorophos, chlorpyrifos, uh, phenthion diazinon, um, these are chemicals uh, of the OP categories. Diazinon is used uh, in home use, typically externally uh, for control in the southeastern part of the U.S., where there's a tremendous con problem with uh, invasion of homes, if you will, by uh, creepy crawly bugs. Uh, when the pesticide applicators come, they typically will treat with uh, chemicals such as diazinon. It is labeled for outside the house use. Uh, there was a classic toxicity case of uh, home pest control uh, gone wrong a few years back of an of a applicator that was using this compound inside the house and poisoned several families. Malathion and parathion. Parathion has gone out of uh, most use. Uh, I believe, uh, I'm not sure of the exact nature of its ban, but because of its toxicity, if it's not banned from all uses, most uses it is banned. Malathion is a lower toxicity. This is common household uh, uh, not household, uh, yard and garden uh, insecticide. Uh, when you hear about uh, the spraying for the medfly in California in the late 80s, they were spraying malathion for this particular uh, critter. Uh, pyrethroid insecticides are typically regarded as lower toxicity uh, insecticides. Uh, fenvalerate is used in animal tick control uh, products. Uh, if you have um, an animal and you spray them with uh, like a dog or a cat uh, and they have a, a pest control collar or a, uh, uh, a uh, flea and tick spray. Sometimes these will be pyrethroid insecticides. Permethrin, resmethrin, um, uh, some of these actually have uh, uh, their roots, so to speak, in terms of natural products. There are botanical uh, rodenticides, uh, strychnine, and there's a chemical structure. Strychnine comes to us from nature, the Nux vomica uh, plant. Um, because it's a neuroexitory uh, drug, uh, it actually, as I had said before, uh, been used as for doping uh, in, uh, as well as a poison in terms of human applications. In the 1904 Olympics, Thomas Hicks was a marathon runner uh, that uh, succumbed to a, a mixture of strychnine and wine uh, during his race. Uh, those sorts of substances were not banned at that point in time. Uh, we have the coumarin rodenticides, brodificum, bromodilone, warfarin. Uh, when you go to the store and you see rat control, mouse control, reagents, decon, read the labels. Uh, these typically um, impact uh, the uh, rodents. A lot of them are anticoagulants. 
if you or any in your family or friends uh, are on anticoagulant therapy, uh, they are on Coumarin-type drugs or Coumadin. Uh, these are all come from the discovery of warfarin. Warfarin stands for the Wisconsin Research Foundation. Warfarin had an interesting discovery in that the chemical uh, was isolated from some moldy hay that was fed to cows and produced essentially internal bleeding, uncontrolled uh, uh, anticoagulation. Um, anticoagulants are very useful to us, but we as mammals are very leaky organisms. We spring leaks with every movement of our arm, leg, or anything in our bodies, and we have to have uh, coagulation <coughs> to plug those leaks. This dosing of anticoagulants in rodents essentially intoxicates them by having them bleed to death. These are not acute poisons. These take a little bit of time for the animal to uh, absorb and essentially uh, uh, die from this anticoagulation activity. Um, there are inorganic rodenticides. Zinc phosphide is one that's uh, fairly common. These metal phosphides, uh, they produce um, phosphine gas, which is PH3, on contact with water. Uh, zinc phosphide is used, for example, in grain storage areas. Uh, in and of itself, it's uh, pretty innocuous. Uh, it's a solid, but on contact with water will produce uh, phosphine, and phosphine is a respiratory toxin. Um, there are unclassified <coughs> rodenticides of various types and applications. Ergocalciferol <coughs> is actually vitamin D2, uh, which uh, in high concentrations is toxic. It comes from a plant source. Sodium fluoroacetate uh, is an exceptionally interesting compound. We'll deal with it several times as an example toxicant in this particular course. Uh, it actually interrupts or shuts down the Krebs cycle. Uh, it's a very violent and nasty death. Um, it actually comes to us from nature. Uh, various species of the gastrolobium plants uh, in South America and Australia uh, produce this particular uh, uh, toxic compound in very, very high concentrations. Uh, it was actively used as a rodenticide in the United States, uh, gopher control, ground squirrel control. Uh, in the mid-80s, late-80s, it was actually banned uh, because of non-target species impacts. And typically, this was because of, uh, uh, for instance, an animal that was intoxicated, uh, either carrion uh, uh, predators uh, like vultures or active predators like raptors would find a squirrel that was in distress and obviously easy target for lunch. Um, the secondary intoxication from fluoroacetate is significant. We'll go through the whole molecular basis for that secondary intoxication. The amine herbicides, metallochlor, it's distinguished uh, by its really nasty smell. Kind of smells like moldy socks. Uh, how do I know what moldy socks smell like? Uh, hey, what can I say? I was a college student once. Uh, dinitrophenol herbicides, uh, Dynaseb is uh, one of these categories. Dynaseb uh, is a phenolic herbicide. Uh, it's actually, uh, because of its leachability, it actually has low acute toxicity. It does have some reproductive consequences. Uh, it leaches 
uh, tremendously uh, into groundwater. That's why it has actually been banned from most uses. And it actually has a land ban in terms of land disposal. And so the disposal, in terms of hazardous waste management of Dynaseb, has to do something besides just store it because of its potential to leak and contaminate uh, groundwater. There was a tremendously disturbing incident in Grandview, Washington a few years ago, about four or five years ago. A farmer came across, uh, I think, three 30-gallon uh, tubs of Dynaseb uh, concentrate uh, in his barn, uh, thought nothing of just emptying it into a ditch as a disposal uh, mechanism. Uh, over the next uh, year or so, that Dynaseb very concentrated, leached into the local groundwater system. Uh, the neighbor farmers uh, started noticing that their water was yellow, uh, which is the col color of dissolved Dynaseb. Um, they had been drinking uh, dilute and then uh, somewhat concentrated Dynaseb for a substantial period of time. Uh, there were women of reproductive age that were in the consuming public. Uh, this was a local tragedy. Uh, it ended up costing this individual, I think, several million dollars, uh, as well as uh, intoxicating a significant uh, number of the uh, surrounding population. Uh, the imis, uh, like amazotapir, uh, is another uh, herbicide compound. Uh, Fairly low uh, toxicity, uh, fairly stinky compound. Uh, they've actually tried to look at this as uh, herbicidal uh, anti-sprouting reagent on potatoes, but it uh, actually impacts a very malodor uh, kind of uh, sensory on, on the potato. Uh, in terms of organophosphorus herbicides, uh, the most famous of these is glyphosate. I give you the structure here. Many of you have probably used glyphosate if you manage a home garden or a lawn or even an agricultural operation. Um, it has extremely low mammalian toxicity. It has good biodegradability. Uh, it is interesting. This is a Monsanto compound. Um, there have been, in terms of GMOs, uh, an interaction that uh, this typically will target uh, most uh, uh, herbis most plants. And glyphosate resistance has been engineered into uh, some crops. When we talk about GMO crops, uh, glyphosate resistance is one of the genetic modifications uh, that has been engineered. So you can use this herbicide, kill all the weeds, but not kill the target plant. Um, it's interesting in terms of a local note. Um, Idaho has uh, one of the major, one of the two major resources of phosphorus, mineral phosphorus, in the United States. Florida being the other state, uh, the phosphorus from all Roundup used uh, nationally and internationally comes from Idaho and its uh, phosphate mining operations. In terms of the phenoxyacetic uh, acid herbicides, uh, you've uh, seen and heard of 2,4-D. It's in active use. It has low toxicity. Uh, we'll talk in our ecological biochemistry of why certain plants uh, uh, actually metabolize this and eliminate it before it has uh, the ability to be a growth stimulant, an auxin, if you will. And it grows, if you've ever used this on uh, your lawns, you know that by treating a weed, the weed, it takes a while, sometimes a week, 10 days, two weeks, the weed seems to grow out of control. And it's this out of control growth that is the principle of toxicity for 2,4-D. Quaternary ammonium herbicides, uh, paraquat, diquat, or uh, some of the most uh, um, 
uh, prevalent ones that are used. Uh, diquat and difenzoquat are used sometimes in aquatic uh, as aquatic weed uh, mitigators. If you have a pond or a lake that is overrun, uh, sometimes you'll be using things like difenzoquat, uh, diquat, and sometimes 2,4-D uh, as a way to limit uh, plant growth that uh, leads to eutrophication. Uh, unfortunately, about the uh, bipyridals like paraquat, um, they're also the classic oxidative stress. We always talk about antioxidants and the need to take antioxidants. We'll talk about these classic redox cycling compounds like paraquat, uh, these biphenyl uh, herbicides, and how they have uh, induced oxidative stress. We have the thiocarbamate uh, herbicides, molinate, which is used on rice fields quite often in uh, California. The triazine herbicides like atrazine. Atrazine is corn and soybean herbicide. Uh, it's actively used. Unfortunately, it leaches uh, most of the Midwest United States. The corn belt, the soybean belt, has uh, contaminated water supplies. Atrazine and its metabolic byproducts, its environmental byproducts, are considered to be one of the greatest risks to water quality, drinking water quality in the United States. The SUs like uh, metsulfuron, the sulfonylureas, uh, we've talked about briefly, uh, very low mammalian toxicity, very good biodegradability, very good target species in terms of plants, not animals. Um, and this has been, when we talk about safer, uh, typically, the SUs are categorized as uh, safer herbicides because of their desirable characteristics. Now, let's transition to the legal base for monitoring. We reviewed uh, the, the uh, aspect of outrage uh, that causes us to uh, have an enhanced concern, uh, especially about things uh, that we don't control. Uh, th th there's some aspect of uh, voluntary risk, uh, but when we have involuntary risk, we tend to be somewhat outraged when somebody, especially somebody that is perceived as profiting from increasing our risk. Uh, the publication of the Jungle in 1906 gave us the Federal Meat Inspection Act, and that bred the F Pure Foods and Drug Act, the whole uh, genesis of the Food and Drug Administration, the FFDCA, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, that started regulating these chemicals in our environment. This birthed concern about agricultural chemicals that were starting to be used in agriculture in the Federal Insecticide Act. And then in 1947, we saw the genesis of FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. That is a mouthful. Most folks will say FIFRA. We have had, since 1947, periodic amendments to update and upgrade uh, FIFRA and the FFDCA in terms of how we manage chemicals and food additives in the human food chain. A big uh, concern came to us in 1958. Uh, there were a series of FFDCA uh, amendments to deal with food additives. One of the amendments, uh, also referred to as the Delaney Clause, essentially gave us the concept of zero-risk cancer standard for residues from processed foods. You could not add a food additive, and those food additives included residues of agricultural chemicals used in production were not allowed in processed foods. Now, take a time travel trip back to the science in 1958. Zero risk. Any detection, no matter what the concentration, was violative and illegal of a chemical that had been found and judged to be carcinogenic. The reason I put um, 
uh, a Thanksgiving uh, dinner uh, picture here is because as it turned out in 1958, the year of that passage, there was also the detection of a chemical compound, aminotriazole, in cranberries. Many of the cranberries produced in the state of Washington. So Ocean Spray and all the other cranberry producers that canned their products were actually uh, advised, and homeowners, uh, housewives, people that uh, prepared food were encouraged because of that to not use cranberry during Thanksgiving season 1958. Do you think that attracted a lot of attention? You bet it did. So the first time ever we had a dramatic cross-population impact of pesticide risk and what we saw on our dinner table. Uh, so this was a, a dramatic sort of increase, but it was at that point in time law. The Delaney Clause was actually a major motivator for the changes in the 1996 uh, FQPA. Now in terms of follow-up legal basis for monitoring, we have uh, federal jurisdiction that comes to us from EPA and from FDA, which is a, department, uh, a functionary uh, administrative agency of the Health and Human Services uh, Cabinet Department. FSIS, which is the federal, uh, the Food Safety Inspection System, which is a branch of USDA, and the Agricultural Marketing System, which is another branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The authority comes to these uh, executive agencies via FIFRA and FFDCA, uh, the, the uh, Federal Meat Inspection Act, uh, the Poultry Protection uh, Inspection Act, and the Egg uh, Inspection Act, EPIA. The EPA itself gives us the authority for registration, risk assessment, tolerance development, and environmental quality associated with pesticides and agricultural chemical use. FDA does the food tolerance enforcement, so FDA has the ability to enforce uh, tolerances, these legal standards for maximum contamination, maximum contamination levels of a particular pesticide, again, in a particular commodity. The FDA, the FSIS, and the AMS all have food monitoring programs. So that's border inspections, uh, production inspections. Some of these can be uh, at the farm gate. Some of these can be uh, investigations of overspray incidences, farm worker health, uh, and farm worker monitoring. There is, uh, I think in all except for one state, primacy at the state level. So the federal regulatory authority is handed down from the federal government to state government uh, in, I think, all but one state in terms of primacy for FIFRA, and there's good interaction. Typically, that also means that the enforcement resources, the dollars, are handed off to the state under contract. In 1996, we had the most dramatic change in terms of modernization of the pesticides and food system in the United States with the development of the Food Quality Protection Act. Now, we also have an interface of pesticides with water in the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, we have maximum contaminant levels for several pesticides in terms of screens. Safe Drinking Water Act, SDWA, actually monitors and manages they refer to it as municipal systems, but pretty much any connection over about 25, so that can be a mobile home trailer court working off a well, will be monitored and regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act. You will not be monitored if you are a farmer or rural uh, citizen drinking off of your own well. So in a certain sense, uh, you don't necessarily have an oversight of the water quality that you are drinking. 
The Clean Water Act uh, gives us swimmable and fishable waters. Uh, we'll talk about the Clean Water Act and discharge permits, but companies uh, may be discharging chemicals, for example, uh, pesticide manufacturers, and these, there is some interaction there with the CWA. Now, in terms of uh, active management of actively produced hazardous waste, RICRA, the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, actually gives a list and categorization of types of chemicals that are managed actively in terms of active production of hazardous waste. Okay, So if you're working in a company and you develop a waste stream because of what you do and how you do it in terms of packaging uh, or synthesis manufacturing, uh, you are managed in a very cradle-to-grave way, and we'll talk about RICRA and how it impacts manufacturing. CERCLA is the infamous Superfund. Um, uh, CERCLA manages uh, primarily uh, hazardous substances in a broad definition. It's inclusive of many other uh, uh, definitions of hazardous materials, hazardous substances from other pieces of regulation like RICRA, like the Clean Water Act, like uh, the Safe Drinking Water Act. Now, FDPA have kind of hinted that this was a tremendous watershed in the history of pesticides and human food chain in the United States. Uh, it was years in the making. Uh, it adopted most of the scientific recommendations, and so we're talking about decades of scientific recommendations that we need to be doing a better job. The problem was convincing legislators, economic interests, agricultural interests, getting everybody on the same page to have this move forward. Many of you, no matter where your passions are in the pesticide and food debate, can respect that at least this is a passionate debate. Those same passions are expressed in the political power plays in Washington in terms of coming up with a national legislative approach to pesticides in the human food chain. One of the big drivers for FQPA was the Delaney Paradox. And the Delaney Paradox was that different regulations now, because it dealt only with processed foods and these trace carcinogens in processed foods, we could have that same level of a carcinogenic chemical in a raw food and in a processed food, yet the processed food would be the only one that was regulated. So that didn't make any sense in terms of regulation. It allowed for no detectable level of carcinogens in processed foods. Now think about 1958 science and what we could detect in a laboratory versus 1995, 1996 science. We had come from being able to broadly detect only maybe parts per million, tens of parts per million, hundreds of parts per million of these chemical compounds through routine laboratory techniques to perhaps parts per billion, parts per quadrillion, nanogram or sub-nanogram levels. And so zero risk from any concentration. We could detect concentrations uh, down to these very minute amounts. And so in a certain sense, the legislative authority dealt with one scientific reality, but our present scientific reality in the 1990s was considerably different. We also knew that there are some differences in terms of risk assessment approaching these chemical compounds at these low concentrations. The other thing that uh, was a major driver for the Food Quality Protection Act were court decisions that required the enforcement of Delaney. And these came down essentially via activists uh, that essentially sued for enforcement of Delaney. Uh, and enforcement of Delaney court cases uh, came down that uh, essentially the uh, U.S. District Court, Washington, D.C., said, well, we have a law on the books 
Department of Agriculture states you have to enforce this. And so pretty much uh, that was lining up as a major hammer in terms of anti-pesticide activists uh, to enforce the existing Delaney Clause. And so this was moving forward that all of these processed food products that might have had detectable traces were now potentially going to be banned. What also happened in terms of motivation for change, the National Academy of Sciences uh, came out with the what's referred to as the kids studies under the title of Pesticides in the Diets of Infants and Children in 1993. I knew some of the folks, very good scientists, uh, National Research Council scientists that uh, actually uh, helped write this analysis. Um, what it actually did for the first time was say, hey, our risk assessment is all wrong for pesticides in the human food chain. We need to be focusing on kids for a whole lot of reasons. We'll go through some of those reasons. We're not doing that. We're using an adult risk model. We need to use a kid risk model for very specific reasons. There was also a lot of pressure from minor crops, which were excluded from getting access to any pesticides because of the regulatory requirements. Uh, you would find many for major commodities, corn and soybeans, but even, for example, potatoes are considered to be a minor crop. And uh, we're not just talking about rutabagas and cabbage, we're talking about most of the vegetables and crops that you consider uh, in the U.S. diet are considered to be minor crops. There are only a few major crops, things like corn, cotton, soybeans, uh, I think wheat is another major crop. Uh, interestingly enough, in 1996, it was an election year, uh, this particular legislation didn't come from the agriculture committees, where there is perhaps uh, a lot more uh, passion about pesticide and pesticide use in agriculture. It came out of the Commerce Committee, which is more oriented towards consumers and consumer protection. Uh, it actually came to us with unanimous passage. Now think about, so even in recent history, when anything in the U.S. Congress came out with unanimous passage in the House and the Senate. There was a tremendous amount of motherhood and apple pie linked with this because of pesticides in the diets of infants and children. If you voted against this, you were voting to poison our kids, as succinctly put. And so in a certain sense, the court decisions, the scientific community, all kind of pushed this forth. And in fact, this was a monumental change, and we'll go through some of those changes. The National Academy of uh, Sciences Kids Study told us that the exposure to children and pesticides is substantially different from that in adults, and that it came up with a broad conclusion that government needs to do more to address the unique risks uh, uh, posed to children. This has actually started a whole flow of risk versus benefits analysis to many laws in the United States that have focused on more important subpopulations, more sensitive subpopulations, such as children, to drive the risk assessments. In terms of looking at this from a food perspective, if you look at the foods consumed by kids in this particular uh, uh, National Academy table, non-nursing infant subgroup, you can see in terms of the commodities per day, these are commodities that happen to have substantial amounts of uh, pesticide residues. These are substantial amounts, far more than adults consume, especially on a body weight per basis. These are growing kids, they burn calories, so we all necessarily can't consume what we ate as early teenagers when we were growing two and three inches a day, uh, I'm sorry, a year. Uh, so these kids are eating a lot more and the potential exposure is a lot more. 
They're not just little adults, uh, these kids. Uh, about 300 active ingredients were registered in the top 20 commodities eaten by infants and children. And so there was exposure, and there was exposure at a higher level than adults. So the changes from FTPA, we now have kids as the dose model. We actually started including additive toxicity, that there was no reason to assume that we should look at OP or neurotoxicity just from a particular chemical compound when this entire class of chemicals actually had the same mode of toxicity. And so we add up all these particular class of chemicals in the diet and do the risk assessment from an additive perspective. What does this do if there's about 30 or 40 OPs? Immediately what that does is it reduces the risk levels, quantitative risk levels, by factor 40. Because you've got 40 chemicals in there, you're not going to uniquely use each one in terms of a dose response. You're going to add them all in together in terms of human dietary exposure. You're also going to look at aggregate exposure from other things besides food, things like occupational exposure, lawn exposure for household chemicals, uh, homeowner chemicals, and uh, also for things like drinking water and other sorts of aspects of exposure. A big change was the incorporation of risk assessment for endocrine disruption. This is actually was advocated in Silent Spring in 1960. It took us until 1996 to incorporate that into the regulatory science monitoring of food quality in the United States. Big problem in 1996 was this was a developing uh, area of science. We didn't know how to do it. It took us five or six years to even kind of come together and look at possible ways to start reviewing all of these chemicals for potential endocrine disruption and estrogenic effects. There's about two dozen methods. Uh, they're still going through uh, various levels of review and analysis, whether they be in vitro or in vivo. In vivo meaning using rat or animal studies, in vitro meaning cellular or test tube studies. Um, we also changed the risk versus benefits equation associated with pesticides in that we adopted for the first time in human uh, regulatory history, I'm sorry, U.S. regulatory history in the United States, a reasonable certainty of no harm health standard. This is a monumental change in approach in that the commissioner of the FDA certifies that the decisions, the allowable levels, have a reasonable certainty of no harm in terms of pesticides in the human food chain. We also put a lot of sunshine on the process. I indicated that many pesticide decisions were done behind closed doors in terms of confidential business information. You, I, or the other person could not get access to the studies or the information used to regulate and monitor pesticides. We now have consumer right to know. You, I, or anybody can look up on the internet all the toxicology data summaries. Uh, they're actually posted uh, in the um, uh, regulatory uh, document stream on the United States government websites. Well, FEDFOR gives us uh, uh, the major authority for pesticides in the human food chain in the United States. It's a licensing authority. The labels on the product, and look at that next time. In fact, you're in a hardware store. Examine the labels, and sometimes they pull out. They are actually a license authority. They are very strict with respect to commercial application. But it is one of the few risk versus benefit statutes, and we're applying more and more of these as we mature in terms of our regulatory science here in the United States. 
It gives EPA strong authority to require any data necessary to evaluate the human health uh, aspects of an agricultural chemical in the environment. When they do register a a uh, chemical for a crop use. Uh, it is national in scope and authority. The registrant, the manufacturer or the user group uh, that is trying to register this use, uh, generates the data under very strict GLP or good laboratory practices, auditable legal documentation guidelines. Those, that information, which can be very expensive, is used to evaluate risk by the regulatory authorities. The risk assessment process is to do uh, hazard identification where we do this toxicity testing, look at these adverse effects. We come up with a quantitative dose response assessment. We've gone through this once and we'll go through this quite a bit more in this course. Uh, we establish this quantitative toxicity relationship, this dose response. We model that and put safety factors on it. We look at exposure assessment in terms of where this is coming from, in terms of our daily exposures. And then we try to characterize that risk on a toxicity exposure basis. When we do that, we do that for kids in terms of their body weight, which, and we also actually uh, include safety factors for uh, compounds that are found to have any sort of developmental neurotoxic or estrogenic effects these chemicals typically get an extra tenfold safety factor. In terms of the registration, there can be as many as 70 specific tests, and these sometimes are tremendously long-lived uh, rat studies, uh, uh, in terms of multi-year studies, uh, environmental studies. Uh, that they can exceed $10 million in cost easily. They looked at the health effects and toxicology, environmental fate, ecological effects, some of the residue chemistry in terms of the metabolism in the plant, because a plant can metabolize, or an animal can metabolize a chemical compound and make it more toxic to us, and so we need to look at the toxicity, not only of the parent compound, but of the metabolites as well. The commercial development for this is very similar to pharmaceuticals. It can take 10 years and $50 million. And so this is why it costs $300 per acre sometimes to use agricultural chemicals in production practice. We look at what's called the TTR, the total toxic residue. We do this by doing uh, animal residue and plant and uh, metabolism studies. Uh, typically they're done with radio-labeled compounds. Uh, we try to recover 80 or 90 percent of that residue. And again, when we get into the discussion of biotransformation, we'll see that Sometimes a parent compound will be excreted, but more often than not, we'll see it as metabol uh, metabolic products. It can be a major metabolic product uh, and then a couple of minors, or it can be actually scattershot into one, two, three, four, five different metabolites. Uh, there are sometimes uh, additional uh, toxicology trials if there is a major metabolite that is substantially changed in terms of evaluating its direct toxicity because, in fact, that is what you're going to be eating as uh, the major metabolite of a food product, for example. They'll take a look at the effects of food processing and some of the storage uh, and, and uh, treatments associated with, for example, concentrating uh, uh, a, if you're cooking down something that is 80% water as a natural plant and you're concentrating it, dehydrating it, for example, you're going to be concentrating the chemicals in there. In terms of uh, human health analysis, all of this is done before food use registration. They do look at ecological impacts, acute and chronic studies, aquatic and terrestrial studies. 
this is LD50, cancer studies, a whole array of reproduction studies. They take a look at human health impacts, acute and chronic uh, studies. They look at uh, other chemicals in that same class and category to get an idea of its comparative toxicity, not only in humans but in animals. Uh, they look at populations and subpopulations. For example, if you have a subpopulation that uses this particular food product as a major component in their diet, their exposure is going to be significantly higher. There will also be special protection, typically by uh, an increased safety factor associated with uh, children. Now, in terms of determining risk, we find that it is a dose-response experiment. This is what we'll talk about uh, uh, next time in terms of an analyzing this quantitative relationship. We try and come up with a NOAL, a no-observed effect level. Uh, this actually gives us a threshold uh, that is calculated as milligrams per kilogram per day. Uh, what we do is actually take that uh, no effect level, the highest concentration that we observe not giving an effect in an animal study, and we immediately divide that by 100 as the safety factor. Uh, we can actually increase that safety factor by another factor of 10 to 100 times depending upon the toxicity profile, whether it's a developmental neurotoxic or uh, endocrine disrupting chemical. And we'll use this to calculate what is a referred to as a reference dose. All of this uh, is done, I'm sorry, uh, on this quantitative relationship, and we'll explain the sigmoidal graphs. But here you've got an increasing dose, and this is some response that we're analyzing. And you see that we don't have an effect here, no observed adverse effect level, and a lowest observed adverse effect level. But this is an actual data point where we actually have data uh, where we're not seeing the information. And so this number here will be the number that will have safety factors. So this is the concentration that is not producing, the highest concentration not producing an effect in animals. We'll actually uh, divide that by 100 at a minimum, and then we'll actually apply additional safety factors of either 10 to 100. And so you can see that there are tremendous amounts of safety factors incorporated in the risk assessment of these chemicals. So that can mean a thousand-fold difference between the level that's not causing an impact in a rodent is what's allowable in terms of dietary exposure, okay? This is a threshold effect. So this reference dose is derived from these animal studies. Uh, it's of the best available data. We use comparative toxicology because uh, we're not rats, and that's why we apply these safety factors. We might be more sensitive. We use this no observable adverse effect level. Uh, we add these uncertainty factors of 10 to 100, and uh, this gives us the uh, final uh, uh, reference dose allowed in uh, exposure studies. This reference dose is an aggregate daily exposure to the pesticide residue, at or, uh, and at or below this level is considered uh, acceptable. Uh, so this is the management guideline, uh, and then what we do is take this reference dose and actually use it to calculate lifetime exposure, and this lifetime exposure translates into a tolerance in a food product based on estimates of how much food you would eat on a daily, monthly, weekly, and 70-year lifetime effect. We have different mechanisms of risk assessment if it's carcinogenic, and we'll go through carcinogen dose response uh, or carcinogenicity models uh, in our next lecture. 
In the reference dose for cancer, we will actually take a look at uh, a one in a million standard over background based on a, an extrapolated uh, dose. Uh, we don't use a threshold dose. We use essentially the, the lowest dose that is observed to cause cancer in animal studies, and we'll define this uh, in our dose response quantitative uh, assessment lecture. Uh, the problems in terms of animal studies, uh, we are, as we introduced in some of the introductory lectures, these are done at high doses and we extrapolate these to low doses. This may uh, be an imperfect system of risk assessment. We extrapolate large uh, population effects from small animal studies and so this may be a problem associated with the way we do risk assessment. So what we end up with, with all of this analysis, is a tolerance. Uh, this is the bottom line number that is used for enforcement. You can look up in the FDA Red Book uh, the tolerances, for example, of atrazine on spinach. It's established by a review of field efficacy data because if we don't need much in there, let's minimize uh, the amount that uh, is allowable and not encourage excess uh, chemical uh, use uh, if it, in fact, is effective at low dose rates. They, took a look, they take a look at crop residue daily, the lifetime dietary exposure in the RFD or the reference dose, and they come up with this maximum legal pesticide residue level or tolerance. This is a licensed authority. This can actually cause you the criminal civil penalties that we talked about. We do require this for emergency exemptions. Sometimes we end up having an infestation, a problem with a crop where we don't have a registered control. Uh, there can be an emergency exemption. I have you do a little bit of reading about that in your homeworks uh, to, to uh, come up with a strategy to minimize loss to production farmers. Uh, and there is a strategy to do a very fast, uh, if you will, shoot from the hip risk assessment on an emergency exemption request. We come up with these maximum residue uh, levels uh, in international trade. Uh, these are established by World Health Organization, WHO, FAO. Uh, about 50% of these international MRLs are the same as uh, the U.S. Sometimes our risk assessment comes up with different end products. About 20% are more stringent, about 30% are less stringent, and this is a case-by-case -case basis. Other countries uh, put, have input into WHO guidelines. Typically, uh, if U.S. producers are targeting the import-export market, they will try to come up with uh, uh, residue levels uh, that are not exceeding the MRLs uh, for international trade. We have something else called a TMRC, a Theoretical Maximum Residue Contribution. This comes from dietary exposures. These are aggregate exposures from foods, water, non-occupational exposures. These are estimates that we come up with. Uh, it requires uh, consumption, uh, daily consumption of a food uh, at the uh, tolerance level, the maximum level. And so these are theoretical how much uh, exposure, worst case scenarios. And in fact, these are sometimes used in risk assessment. So you can see that we've got safety factors in coming up with these levels, and then we apply these levels in a worst case scenario. These are, should be common to most people that have great concern over uh, these sorts of things. If the worst case scenario is, not, uh, is going to be used, it's going to be used because there is no data. And so it is a great motivator to come up with, by user groups, by commodity producers, with actual residue data, uh, which can be inserted into the risk calculation. 
the, the worst case scenario is that the food contains the residue at the maximum level, that the 100% of the crop that's in the distribution channels of trade is treated, and there is no removal by cooking. Okay, so this is an ultra-conservative on top of the conservative risk safety factors uh, associated with this. What we do is we try to come up with what's called or referred to as a risk cup, uh, that each new crop use of a chemical adds to the dose total, and we cannot, because of aggregate exposure, exceed 100% of the reference dose over a 70-year lifetime exposure. And so every new use increases uh, the, the uh, amount that's in that cup. If that cup is full, there will be no additional uses allowed. Okay, so this is a strategy in terms of managing potential exposure in the diet and uh, minor uses versus uh, major crop uses. And so this risk cup phenomenon is a somewhat of a new one. It used to be that risk cup was identified for a particular OP like uh, malathion. Now all of those uh, OPs are in the same risk cup. And so that risk cup for an individual chemical got about 40 times smaller with FQPA. In terms of the safety sta statute, it establishes a strong health-based safety standard for residues in foods. Uh, the FDA commissioner certifies with a pesticide registration that there is a reasonable certainty of no harm, that all foods are safe. This is a large and monumental step forward in terms of U.S. pesticide management. In terms of FQPA, over the past 10 years, every tolerance had to go through a reevaluation. The new law required a review of all tolerances. The 1996 schedule, we're now 10 years out. We have achieved, in terms of EPA re-registration review, all the data has been reviewed under the new guidelines, request for additional data, and so we are in 99 plus percent compliance of the FQPA. This has to be regarded by anybody associated with this field as a regulatory science success, not only in coming up with the law, but actually executing it in a relatively short amount of time given the complexity of the 9,000 tolerances that had to be reviewed. The priorities for review were given to the greatest uh, risks in terms of public health, the uh, organophosphates, the organochlorines, the carbamates. Those chemicals associated with developmental toxicity were done first. And so that new data was established for those higher risk chemicals. One aspect of uh, FQPA is this common toxicity mechanism. Uh, you've seen on our website, and we'll talk about this in target organ toxicology, about uh, additive toxicity, for example, neurotoxicity from the OPs. And we incorporated this into a risk cup in terms of combining all of the common modes toxicity chemicals into one risk cup. In terms of cholinesterase inhibition, I'll introduce this, that this is an important part of the concerns over pesticides. These are neurotoxic chemicals. Uh, acetylcholine is the chemical mediator in between the synapses of your neurons. And acetylcholinesterase is the enzyme that modulates this neurotransmission. On your website, I've given you a link to a little animation we threw together to kind of show you how this happens in a little bit of a cartoon fashion. But this is a dramatic impact in terms of the mode of toxicity in insects of these OP carbamate insecticide chemicals. There is significant risk in terms of human exposure as well. Aggregate exposure gave us uh, a way to look at all of the different risk uh, dimensions in terms of drinking water, yard household chemicals. 
As it turns out, about 25% of the water in the United States comes from groundwater. Groundwater is susceptible to leaching. About 50% of the people in the United States use groundwater as their primary supply of drinking water. And so there is a risk vector in terms of agricultural acreage that is treated with that, uh, with a chemical that is potentially a leaching chemical. A big step forward was also the introduction of management from a risk perspective of endocrine disruptors. These are chemicals which interfere with endocrine system function. We'll talk about this in an entire case study lecture towards the end of the semester. The uh, endocrine system consists of glands and hormones, the pituitary, the thyroid, the adrenals, uh, female ovaries, and the male testes. This is a part of the hormonal system that makes us who we are. If we have chemicals that interrupt or interfere with this system, it changes who we are. They're biochemicals. Uh, they travel through the bloodstream. The hormones of primary concern in terms of endocrine disruption are the estrogenic uh, type chemicals. Uh, estrogen, androgen, and the thyroid hormones are some of those. And finally, we have a consumer right to know. Uh, FQPA uh, put a tremendous amount of sunshine on a previously uh, dark aspect of regulatory science and risk assessment. Uh, it required uh, the placement of a food and pesticides brochure in the marketplace. It required publication of data summaries in the uh, Federal Register. This was a new development in terms of uh, the consumer right to know. So in the Federal Register, you can search around on the internet your favorite pesticide and see at a minimum data summaries, and you can actually explore even further on the EPA registration websites the full detailed documents associated with uh, the dosage experiments of pesticides that uh, are used in the human food chain. Well, what that does for you is give you a sense of uh, pesticides in the human food chain. Uh, introductory, yes, but I think enough uh, information that uh, you can use this to as a point of reference and we start talking about uh, all things toxic and toxicology. We start talking about uh, absorption, for example, in the gastrointestinal tract. When we start in our lecture, for example, on uh, neurotoxicity and target organ toxicity, and we start talking about the molecular interaction of organophosphate chemicals, for example, as neurotoxins with the cholinesterase and the irreversibility of that molecular reaction, you can think back to this particular lecture and say, oh, I've heard that before. That's why we do this a little bit early to introduce. Next time, what we'll do is we'll start on the quantitative relationship in toxicology called dose response. Until that time, we'll see you. Thank you.